What's up, plant people? It is March 3rd. It's a Tuesday in the year 2020. And I'm coming at you again with another great episode of the Planthropology Podcast. This is Vikram Baliga, your host, and I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Um, this is going to be a good one. They're all good ones. Listen to them all. They're wonderful. But I'm really excited about today's. Uh, We're talking about insects and graduate school and life. And it's really just wonderful and a lot of fun. A couple of things first. We had our first live show uh, two days ago. On Sunday, um, the first at LubbockCon, and it was that was just a blast. It was so much fun. Thanks to everyone for coming out. Um, if you want to watch that, it's in the Facebook group. I streamed it live. Also, it'll be coming out next week uh, as a bonus episode. Actually, lots of great com- content coming at you this month. We've got today's episode, next week's bonus uh, live show. Uh, a super secret, it's not that much of a secret, but a super special, awesome guest for episode 10 on the 17th. And then actually that next Tuesday, the 24th, I'm going to be doing a spring uh, gardening and landscape tips episode at the request of a couple of people. Um, people have been throwing questions at me and I thought it'd be fun to take a little bit of time right after episode 10 to answer some of your questions and to celebrate spring. So I actually forgot on the last episode with my friend Kristen Bingham to read your reviews, to read one of your reviews. And I can't believe I did that because I just started doing that. Actually, I can't believe it. That's like such a Vikram thing to do. So I'm actually going to read two today, two reviews from iTunes today. The first one is by Psycho Bearcat, and it says, wonderful. I listened to all eight episodes on an extended road trip to a science conference, which is I mean, come on, that's the best kind of conference. And it made makes me so happy. Great idea, Vikram. Thanks, Psycho Bearcat. That's super cool. And the other one is by Crystal Bell 7, and it says, one of my favorite podcasts. From horticulture to entomology, this podcast will surely brighten your day. Crystal, you're one of my favorite people. So uh, that's super cool. Um, You're all great, and I thank you so much for reviewing and rating and just commenting, being a part of the Facebook group, and all the cool stuff we do. Y'all are way rad. Is rad still a thing people say? I think I'm going to ask a uh, uh, question like that on every episode. Anyway, y'all are great. I really love y'all, and uh, thanks so much for reviewing. It helps out a lot. So, today's episode is with entomologist Erfan Vafai, who... uh, by the way, when he gives presentations, has the very best um, like pictorial description of how to say his name. It's hilarious. If you ever get this chance to see this guy speak, do it. He is an entomologist and IPM specialist with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Um, he's a, a doctoral candidate, just like I am, and a dad and a, an improv comedian. And he's just hilarious and a super smart guy with really great insight into science and science communication um you may remember right before christmas i posted an episode with my son bradley as our first bonus episode if you haven't heard it go listen to it because this is the episode that he interrupted while i was recording it uh luckily airfon was very gracious again he's got a little one as well and uh, i think he understood but um so that comes up little little bradley's voice pops in two or three times in this episode but Aside from that, I think we're ready to go to rock and roll, as the kids say these days. Hello, fellow kids. Anyway, uh, y'all are great. Can't wait for you to hear this episode. And here we go with episode nine of Planthropology with my friend, Erfan Vafai.
we're shooting for um, uh, around half two an hours. Hour. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Two, two, three hours, just as long as we can talk. Um, yeah, I got so, a whole script written out. I'll just read it. That's perfect. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> It'll be like a monologue, right? And it's yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Gettysburg Address or something. I just um, need you to nod periodically. I will. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we are live and recording. So uh, thanks for being with me. I have uh, Erfan uh, Vafai, I think I pronounced that wrong probably, but um, who is an entomologist with uh, Texas A&M AgriLife Research. Is that correct? Uh, extension. Yes. Oh, you're on the but, extension uh, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on the extension side. We do not uh, talk or cross over to the research side. Just as little as that possible. is not true. That is not true. That's that's a little running joke. But uh, yeah, I, technically, I'm on the extension side. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I really appreciate your time. You coming on and chatting. And I was with extension. So it's only kind of a joke. It's like it's like a 60 percent joke. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, it depends on who, who you're talking to. You know, you don't want to ruffle any feathers. So I'm going to say uh, that it's just completely a joke. You know, there's no there's no tension there at all. None at all. No. Okay. So anyway, so uh, I guess introduce yourself a little bit more. Tell us about your um, position, what you do, and uh, what kind of what that entails. Yeah. So I'm the extension uh, program specialist is like the full title in integrated pest management uh, to kind of digest that a little bit. I essentially work with uh, greenhouse growers and nursery growers. So anyone who grows petting plants, uh, trees, shrubbery, all those goodies, and I help them with a lot of uh, pest management challenges, uh, all the way from you know preventing them to scouting them uh, to insecticide or biological control, and uh, you know I do a combination of research and extension. So even though I'm I'm technically with extension, um, there's unfortunately not a whole lot of us uh, horticultural entomologists, as we maybe call ourselves that uh, are currently doing research in this field. So there's a great need. So uh, I do a number of, uh, you know, trials, a lot of research to try and, you know, find new answers for growers. Then I extend that information through websites, social media, presentations, uh, so on and so forth, written materials. So that's kind of, I mean, it, you know, what I do in a nutshell, I guess. Okay. Okay. That's cool. I mean, and that's, and you're right. I think that um, maybe that the greenhouse entomology and the horticultural crop entomology um, is, it probably is lacking on the research side. And so I think it's great that you, you know, get the opportunity to do both. Um, Oh yeah. And uh, so how did you get there? What, like, how did you get into entomology? What, I guess things, you know, because I always ask this question because I'm, I look at my own job and managing a greenhouse at university and it's never like a straight line, right? There's always a weird winding trail that gets us here. So oh, yeah. uh, what, what's your life been like? How'd you get here? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you ask because, you know, a lot of people in entomology, they were, you know, doing insect collections in 4-H or they in many ways started at a very young age and had a passion for it. I kind of started all the way, uh, it wasn't until college that I even recognized entomology as a potential field of study. And, uh, you know, really started with an increasing passion just for the scientific method, where I had a course, uh, Dr. Brent Sinclair at the University of Western Ontario, or also known as Western Ontario now in Canada, uh, where, you know, we did actual 
you know, labs where you're researching, you know, reading primary literature, you're actually collecting data, doing the data analysis, analyzing that data. And I was like, this is really cool because like detective work, you know, I'd be sitting on the side of a building outside reading papers and trying to find new methods or trying to find clues and hints right. on how to solve a particular issue. I just thought that was really cool. And so I ended up getting a summer job with uh, Dr. Sinclair that summer. And he is a, you know, animal physiologist specializing in insect physiology. And specifically, he's looking at cold tolerance. So there are some insects that can tolerate being completely frozen and then uh, thaw out when it warms up and they're still alive. So it's basically, you know, yeah, it's like cryopreservation, right? Like we talk about that, uh, you know, in fiction movies, they talk about that when they're doing space travel, you know, having to freeze people and thaw them out. And so I was like, whoa, this is really cool. And they're trying to learn how to, you know, artificially do that in species that can't do it naturally. So it was basically the beginning of cryopreservation. And so I thought that was really cool. From there, uh, I had a couple other courses, you know, ecology and chemical ecology with uh, another, you know, great, uh, you know, influencer in my life, Dr. Jeremy McNeil, who is a very good insect ecologist, uh, very famous. And, um, you know, from there, I started to become really passionate about interactions between insects, plants, insects, and insects. Because in this course, you know, we'd learn, for example, that when a caterpillar chews on the plant, that plant can release uh, these chemicals into the air, these volatiles that attracts predators of the caterpillar. So in a sense, you know, plants are recruiting their own defenses. And it's this little mini alien war that's like constantly going on at this microscopic <laughs> level in our backyard. So we don't, I mean, we just overlook it, you know, we look, look yeah. at an insect, we think it's gross. Uh, but from there, you know, so I, kind of fusing my passion for science and seeing a very practical application. So in this case, it was a protection of uh, agricultural commodities or protection of crops using uh, ecology that then really just kept propelling me. And I just, every summer I got new opportunities and new labs and, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of, you know, what, what led me into this fork in my life, I guess. Right. No, that's really interesting. And so like, that, but that's something that nobody thinks about. I, well, I say that, not nobody. I think that's uh, those are some things that, in general, people don't think about, right? They are um, kind of just interesting parts of our whole ecosystem and our whole agricultural system that are maybe that are they're so small or they're so um, maybe I don't know what the word is, maybe other than what we're that we typically do that. Um, we just overlook it. We don't think right. about this whole, you said alien warfare. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. That yeah, yeah, whole, like, yeah. World. I mean, I know I always use this, uh, you know, this analogy when I'm giving my talks, uh, especially to, you know, different, uh, you know, gardener groups or, or different, um, you know, master naturalists, master gardeners and whatnot that, that really, you know, these, uh, a lot of fictional movies you see are based on insects in many ways. Like the movie alien is parasitic wasps. You know, these are things that as oh, yeah. entomologists we're you know, very familiar with and, and play with on, on a regular basis. You know, uh, there's another one that's referred to, sometimes referred to as antlions that make these little pits. And yeah. basically like uh, shoot sand at insects and then pull them down into those pits. That's basically Sarlacc from Star Wars, that thing that eats Bubba Fett. You know, it's like all these like cool concepts. You're like, oh man, this is basically like, you know, this and that from that fiction movie. Uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it is like mini aliens and you know, I think on this large scale uh, that we see, they just seem so small and irrelevant. 
But when you start to learn about these like tiny little interactions and the role they play, uh, it, it really is truly incredible. So that, that kept driving my passion uh, in this field. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. That's awesome. And, um, you know, and I, I love that you can make it and we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit more, I think, as this goes on about the, um, like outreach and public, hang on just a sec. Sorry. But what, buddy? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, well, I'll, sh- I'll show you later. Okay. Hey, can you go get back in bed? No. Okay. Can you at least be quiet? Go, go, go. Go on. Okay, sorry. Um, No worries, man. No worries. (laughs) He's he's funny. Uh, But um, so, I, you know, we'll talk, like I said, we'll talk a little bit more um, as we go on about the public education and the outreach side of what you do. But I think the the ability to take these concepts like we're talking about, you know, from, from antlions to everything else, to parasitic wasps and make it approachable for the general public is such a big job or a big part of our job as science educators. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's the thing that's been kind of uh, overlooked and being recognized as more important more recently is that as scientists. It's not good enough to, Uh, know how to do the science, but it's also equally important to be able to communicate that science to different levels of people, whether it be other academics or be the general public, or it might be other specialty groups and be able to cater that to those specific groups. And it's, it's a great challenge. I think it's something you learn on the job. I mean, I don't think by any means this is something that uh, I learned in college. Oh no, no, they definitely don't teach us that in yeah. college for sure. Well, <laughs> I, I never, I never learned. Oh in no, <laughs> no, I learned. I didn't you know, learn anything in college. No, I'm just well, <laughs> I, I learned maybe a couple of things, but not like I remember. You know, we talking. It, it was interesting because we would talk a lot about you know biological processes, and and we would learn about things like say photosynthesis, mm-hmm. and it, it would be communicated to us in a very like academic classroom structured sort of way. But the thing that we, I don't think necessarily got, or at least personally, I never got was how do I take this information and package it and send it back out? Right. How do right. I do my right. job as a scientist or science communicator to close that feedback loop and right. uh, take the work we're doing and all the um, research we've generated like from the taxpayer's money and give it back to them in a way. And, right. um, so that's a, that's a big part of, you know, what I think extension does well and, and, uh, what I enjoy doing in my job. Um, so, okay. So you said you went to, uh, the university of, you said Eastern Ontario, did I make that? Western, up? Western Ontario. It was one of those directions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Western Ontario. You just knew it wasn't North cause it's already North. So yeah. Right. It's so far North. North. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I've, I've lived in Texas my whole life. So like pretty much anything <laughs> past Oklahoma is Canada. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so did, were you, uh, were you born and raised in Canada? I was, yeah. About a couple hours away from uh, Toronto or uh, also known as Toronto for people here. You have to like enunciate every syllable. <laughs> we do, uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I grew up mostly within two to four hours of Toronto, mostly in the, in the town of uh, London, Ontario. You know, I lived about a year and a half to two years close to, um, a small town just outside of Windsor called Bell River. And that area, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time that my career would lead me in this way. Uh, but like one of the largest 
uh, tomato glasshouse production areas is in that area. That's where Heinz Ketchup had all their uh, you know greenhouse facilities. I, I don't know if it's still around to this day, but um, yeah. So I spent a couple of years there as well. But yeah, mostly around kind of in the Toronto, I guess area. Okay. So how did you, from there, how did you end up in East Texas? Because I imagine that's like some degree of culture shop. It's got to be. Some degree. So yeah. So (laughs) I have always been a bit of a chameleon. Um, I've been very adaptable to different situations. And, uh, you know, even in school growing up, you know, when I was a young, young boy, we used to move around almost every couple of years. So I always learned to uh, learn about the people around me and adapt and, and uh, kind of, uh, you know, engage that or adopt that particular culture, at least be able to mm-hmm. interact and, and, and um, you know, be one with it, I guess, in a way. And so how did I end up down in, in Texas? Um, I, you know, after my, my master's degree I, in integrated pest management at Simon Fraser University, that was West Coast, Canada, near okay. Vancouver. Uh, I took, I, I did a summer, I did a, actually a six month job on an organic farm trying to learn uh, what it's actually like to farm. So I, I got some context in my pest management because I think it's really easy to give pest management advice to a grower uh, without knowing you know, the day-to-day challenges that they're already facing. So I kind of want to know what it, was, what it was like, what are the day-to-day challenges of actual farming? And so I did a little apprenticeship at Clippers Organics. Uh, it's a pretty famous organic farm there on the West Coast. And then from there, I was kind of looking for any type of work in entomology. And I must've just hit a bit of a, a lull at that point. Cause I, I couldn't find anything, at least in Canada at the time. And, you know, I ended up getting a, um, you know, I had a one job working in an led lighting shop because there was the potential to, you know, do research and do work in incorporating leds into agricultural production. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I worked part-time for a startup company that was doing urban ag. So building glass houses within the city and selling directly to grocery stores and uh, I had about, at this point, you know, probably four months. Actually, no, I did that for about a year. Uh, yeah, I did that probably for about six months. About four months in, I started applying to a bunch of different areas. Uh, you know, I started getting almost a little bit desperate. Because at first, I was like, you know, either close to home near Toronto or back near Vancouver. You know, I was applying in those areas. At this point, I was kind of applying all over. I ended up getting a, a, a job relatively locally uh, near Ni- in the Niagara Falls region. Uh, but about four months into that position, it was a one-year contract, uh, and it was potentially renewed depending on funding. Uh, about four months in, I heard from Texas A&M. Okay. And I remember thinking to myself, like, Texas? Like, I don't even remember applying <laughs> to Texas. And I was thinking to myself, like, if I were to move to the U.S., like, here I am, you know, it's like pompous Canadian, right? Like, if I'm going to move to the U.S., it's going to be to California or like to Boston or like some kind of like cool town, right? Like, why am I going to go to Texas? Well, you know, it was, they were flying me down for the interview. So I was like, worst case scenario, you know what? I get to see Texas. It'd be kind of fun. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, ended up coming down for the interview and I was just so impressed by the people, uh, the other faculty, the other entomologists that I met, uh, the growers that I got to meet. That, you know, I told myself, if I get this position, like, I can't say no, like, I can't refuse it. And just right. the, the freedoms uh, and, and the potential opportunities for growth that this position uh, provided me was just 
I mean, yeah, again, I couldn't say no. So, I mean, I was, I was kind of crossing my fingers hoping that I wouldn't get it. Cause I was like, I'm gonna have to move down to Texas. And, uh, you know, about a few days later I got the call. So next thing I know, I'm, you know, uh, about, about two months later, you know, I want to finish off some work there, finish off the projects I was working on there before I came down. Uh, and I drove on down and yeah, absolutely. I mean, so are, are you originally from Texas? Uh, yeah, I am actually. So, uh, I grew up, uh, here in Lubbock where I live now and I, okay. um, so you're a West Texas guy. I am a West Texas guy. Yeah. Born and raised here and I, but I, um, went to A&M for my undergrad. And so I spent five years, oh, okay. you know, who doesn't do a victory lap anymore sure, uh, right. in, in a college station. And, you know, and so I've, I've, I love that part of the state too. I'm not super, not used to the humidity, but, uh, cause it's, you know, yeah. dry and flat and, all the other right. things up here. That must be uh-huh. nice. Yeah. That, that, this humidity, I mean, so one of the things that, I mean, as you can imagine being a Canadian, like penguin, a penguin, <laughs> wrong pole, but whatever, being a polar bear <laughs> coming down, uh, to Texas, man, like the, the, the summers here and I'm working in greenhouses. So it is, I actually bought myself an ice vest. I don't know if you've oh, seen yeah. these. It's like a vest oh, yeah. where you can pack ice in them. Yeah, I otherwise I don't survive. You know, I needed like to create a little microclimate for my body for it not to just melt, literally melt away into the ground. Oh, it's it's brutal. It's brutal. Oh my gosh. Well, and, and you see, and you're a native Texan now, mind you. Yeah. yeah, you're you're used to the dry. Yeah, that humidity uh, is definitely killer. And then the other thing too is. You know, I, I, you know, I'd realized I'd taken some things in Canada for granted. For example, being able to lie in the grass without being, you know, eaten alive by eaten, fire ants. Right, right. Like I, I think I, I barely lay in the grass here. Whereas in Canada, like that was what you do. Like you just yeah. go outside and lay in the grass. You know, so yeah, like, you may not in Texas. You may not survive the experience. Exactly. You, yeah, you might die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, and uh, so I, I learned the whole fire ant thing pretty quick. Which movie? Uh, no, it's just a joke. <laughs> it's like like any like any movie that has to do with evil like ants and insects. Oh yeah, pretty much it. Right. Someone lays in the grass with a piece of cake and then they die. they swarm you right know. away and you're dead. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so welcome to Texas. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What was yeah, exactly. the first? So the first time that you I don't know looked at your phone or looked at the thermometer in your in your car and it said 110. What was that like for you? <laughs> Oh man. I mean, I remember, so again, you know, doing a lot of my research in greenhouses and in my case, uh, I'm trying to isolate different insect populations within cages within greenhouses. And some of my trial work has been, you know, these are large, kind of large cages. I mean, large is a relative term, four foot by five feet in dimensions and three feet tall. And so I actually put my whole body inside that cage and in those cages, it would get up to like 115 or 117. Oh my God. When I'm in there, I mean, I'm just trying to get my work done and get out. I mean, right. I am like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. You know, I have a, a little wet rag that I put over my forehead. I'm wearing a, <laughs> a cooling vest and I have uh, two employees, one to my left and one to my right, constantly fanning uh, grape leaves. Uh, <laughs> so, some kind of large leaves uh, to cool me off. No, I wish I had that kind of budget. No, right. um, yeah, <laughs> no, like but your uh, only job, you hire, hire a student <laughs> assistant, your only job is to follow me around with this banana leaf. And just cool and just keep me from melting. If I start yep. melting, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so that's good. So you're, uh, and you're currently working on your PhD. Correct. Right? Yes. I'm doing my PhD concurrently uh, in this position. Yes. Gosh. And like, so I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I'm um, trying to finish writing right now and, you know, trying to get to a point where I can defend and not think about it anymore. But uh, how has that been for you? Like balancing, um, you know, cause I know what it's been like in my own experience, but um, how has that been balancing like your work life and your personal life and your academic life and everything else? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we were just talking about this earlier about how, you know, we both have kids. Mine's about 10 and a half months and yours is uh, about four. Yeah. Almost and four. that introduces a whole extra element in there as well. Uh, but for me, I was, I was fortunate, you know, I, I guess I timed it. We actually almost intentionally timed it in such a way so that I'd be done all my coursework and my prelim exams before okay. my son was born. Um, and so for anyone who is not familiar, you know, the, the prelim or candidacy exams is this like grueling, uh, you know, two weeks of written exams given yeah. to you by your, uh, you know, your PhD committee. So that could be four or five other uh, professors that basically just, you know, they can make up whatever exam. So some might be like, you know, 24 hour closed book exam. Others might say one week open book. Uh, and you have two weeks to finish all of these. You have to juggle them all, finish them. If they give you the thumbs up, then a week after those finish, you do an oral exam where they test you verbally in front of them and a whiteboard, in, you know, behind you in case they ask you any, any questions. So that's oh, like, yeah. you know, it's a three month. I mean, I know you're obviously familiar, uh, but, you know, it's a three month study time. And then, you know, about four weeks of hell. And um, so that, you know, we timed that all before Silas was born, you know, uh, because otherwise it would have been almost very, very challenging anyway for me. I don't know how you did it with your son being four years old. Uh, not very, not very well. Uh, <laughs> I survived oh, no. it. I've survived yeah, yeah. it so far. Yeah. Because I mean, at least I had my evenings and weekends. That's what I do. You know, every evening and weekend I'd come home from work and I'm studying, I'm working on my schoolwork. Uh, we try and set aside one evening a week, my wife and I to have a date night. Right. Or, or, you know, at least one afternoon, evening, if it was like a weekend, sometimes if, if my workload wasn't too heavy, because otherwise you can just get too carried away with, with that workload. Oh, for sure. And, uh, so yeah, that was, you know, that was it. It was just trying to, you know, we almost had to prioritize some family or together time. Uh, and then everything else was, uh, work or school. Uh, so it's, uh, I mean, it's busy, but I, I mean, I love it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, what's, yeah. uh, what's your project on? What are you studying? Yeah. So I'm studying. Uh, so have you seen uh, Alien versus Predator? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm just studying that movie for my PhD. Oh, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. No. So I mean, it's, I mean, it's somewhat <laughs> related, but uh, so poinsettia season is upon us, right? So these, uh, you know, beautiful potted plants with the red bracts that we uh, buy during Thanksgiving, Christmas time. Uh, you know, it takes about 16 weeks for growers that receive they get these little cuttings and little basically like broken off pieces of plant at their facilities. They stick them and they grow roots and they grow them out. You know, from the time they get those stickings, the time they go out the door to you with color takes about 20 weeks total. Right. Um, and currently, uh, you know, one of the, they have this one ma uh, major insect pest known as white flies. It's a sucking insect pest that think of like mosquitoes, but of a plant. And so the plant can't swat at it, right? It's kind of just sitting there and it keeps sucking the, the plant's blood, its juices. And uh, as a result, it can kill the plant. They reproduce really quickly, can overwhelm the plant. Uh, they also excrete 
or poop out essentially the sugary solution, which is basically the plant sap, the plant blood all over back onto the plant. That's uh, refer to this. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, when you think about it all in those terms, you know, thinking from the plant's perspective is like, this is crazy. Like, do something. Um, but so, so they excrete, they they poop out this this sugary solution that's sticky on the plant, and then this mold can grow in that sticky solution, known as sooty mold, just like this black uh, soot-like mold. And uh, and so, you know, growers, they, you know, farmers need to manage these white flies. Otherwise, by the time they get to you, the plant is dead. Um, right. and, and you know, it, uh, you know, if you're not convinced, I mean, I think a lot of people are like, Oh no, do natural, don't do anything. And they'll take care of the plant. will take care of it, man. If you know, go to some grower facility, try growing a hundred poinsettias yourself without spraying anything. And, uh, let me know when they're all dead. Cause it'll happen very quickly. <laughs> it's white flies oh, yeah. overwhelmed. So, uh, right now farmers, so I'm giving you like a long roundabout way of what my project is here. Um, cause my project has nothing to do with poinsettias. No, I'm kidding. It does. It does. Uh, so right <laughs> just, now that was a good story though. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole story. So farmers right now have to spray. Well, I, sh- I shouldn't say have to, but a lot of them do spray almost on a weekly basis, some different insecticide wow. to kill these white flies. Yeah. And, uh, now the problem is that we're starting to get more insecticide resistance. Uh, we have some populations or some people would even say species. They're like cryptics. They're, they look identical to other ones, but they're technically different, uh, of white flies that are resistant to a lot of the insecticides that are commonly used. Uh, we also have, you know, big retailers like Lowe's and Home Depot or Walmart that are telling growers they can't use certain classes of insecticides because of some major online petitions, uh, you know, more pesticide use regulations for pesticide applicators, all this kind of stuff is basically um, making pesticides, pesticide use a uh, potentially problematic solution if that's the only solution that these growers are relying on for white fly management on poinsettias. So what I'm looking at is, can we, in Texas, use a predator and a parasitic wasp in combination to manage these white flies uh, at the producer? So, I mean, you know, there's been some earlier work done where people have used just these wasps. And I, I should clarify, these wasps and predatory mites, these tiny little spiders, essentially tiny, can't, can't see them, um, are basically mass-produced by these companies. These companies mass-produce these things, are, are available for purchase. And there are places that already use them in a lot of greenhouses, but they tend to be more temperate-type regions, like the Northeast, Canada, and Europe. Uh, so it's a little bit different here in Texas. And you know, there's been some literature where they only use the wasp. And in using only the wasp, you end up getting uh, some suppression of the white flies, but you have to release so much that it's very costly. Uh, and so I'm basically looking at if you add in this predator as well, you basically get like an alien versus predator scenario against the humans, the humans in this case being the white flies, <laughs> to get some like additional, you know, extra suppression, get some very good control of the white flies. And we're looking at rates, you know, release rates that are going to be economically comparable to pesticide use. So basically, they're not having to spend any additional money uh, in order for this new strategy. So that's kind of it uh, in a nutshell. Okay. No, that's really interesting because I know in my greenhouse, we, uh, on, you know, they, white fly are fairly generalist in nature. And so we fight them on pretty much everything, pretty much everything in the greenhouse. Uh, White fly are like, Hey, this is awesome. I'm going to hang out on this and you knock them back. And then, like you said, a week or 10 days later, a couple of them come in through a crack in the greenhouse or whatever, and then they're yeah. back. Mm-hmm. And so that's, yeah. no, that's really interesting research. Cause I think if, 
um, you know, if for nothing else than from a, a public perception standpoint, if there's other methods of management that are non-chemical or, or whatever, I think that goes a long way uh, to, towards moving the industry in a direction where, um, you know, I, I say I, I'm using the word sustainably a little bit loosely, and I mean sustainably in terms of a public perception standpoint. Um, right. Or, or at least it's a tool in the toolbox, right? It's another thing that we can try. Yeah, and that and that's the main idea. So, I mean, I think you know, some people when I tell them about the type of work I'm doing, they're like, "Oh, that's amazing! Like you're fighting the pesticide industry." And that's not at all the purpose of my research. It's not that uh, I have any kind of fundamental issue with the use of pesticides, but rather by starting off with a biological control program, one in which relies on the release of beneficial insects, you have a a pretty strong contingency plan. So if your white flies, the population start increasing, even if you're releasing your beneficial insects, you can then go in and start nuking, you know, those white flies with insecticides. Right. Whereas if you start off with nuking them and the white flies are resistant and the populations keep coming up, you can't use beneficial insects. So you have this insecticide residue in there. that's usually going to take a little while for it to clear out before your beneficials can go back in. So, I mean, like you said, it's an extra tool in the toolbox that uh, hopefully is, is a more effective and or uh, more uh, kind of, uh, what do I want to say, like a systems strategy. It's just a part of a, a larger strategy for managing their, their pest. Okay. No, that's, that's really cool. I love that. And I love that approach to it. And I love the, the fact that it's not like, you, you know, you don't do this anymore. This is not an option. Chemicals are blah, blah, blah. I think it's a good that we're looking at more of a, well, you know, and you said you're an IPM guy. So we're looking yeah. at a, a integrated kind of um, holistic whole system approach to pest management and all of that. So yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, I think what I kind of want to start wrapping up with is, um, Let's talk a little bit, uh, like we mentioned earlier, about uh, public outreach and just working with the public. Because I know when I was with Extension, that was, I mean, the, my, I mean that, that was my job, right? That's our job yeah, is yeah. to mm-hmm. uh, take science to the people, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what is like? What kind of programming do you do? How, what's your approach to? Um, and you know, this may be a, a huge question that. Um, to, to answer, but what's your approach to science communication? What, how do you feel is the best way to approach taking all these concepts we're talking about and all these, um, what can really be complicated systems and distilling them in a way that, that anyone can understand. So I think, you know, I think that's a part of, uh, part of it, like you said, taking something complicated and distilling it, uh, in one sense, I, you know, especially around controversial issues like pesticide safety, uh, you know, protecting pollinators, um, you know, neo, uh, this, this class of insecticides known as neonicotinoids and their impact on pollinators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- all of those types of subjects, rather than trying to simply just distill and, you know, give them a simple answer, I usually try and demonstrate how complicated the matter can be mm-hmm. and why there's so much controversy and why things are never quite as simple as we like them to be. You know, I think a lot of people uh, think that science, uh, if there's one publication, right, that, uh, that says, you know, X, Y, and Z, that, you know, all scientists agree and that X, Y, and Z is true. And really any, you know, someone who practices science knows that, you know, uh, scientific 
census is something that takes a lot of research, a lot of time, a lot of replication before uh, you can really draw a particular conclusion. And so, you know, it, the science is a, is very, like I said, it's detective work. And so for someone to read, you know, a online blog that cites um, some kind of a, a science trade magazine that cites a research article and to take those conclusions as fact uh, is a kind of a fallacy that is not, that is not, you know, as a scientist, we know that's not true. As a scientist, I'd immediately go directly to that research and I'm trying to investigate those answers and trying to see what other related research are, what, you know, what they say and if the answers are similar or not. And so when I'm talking about things like uh, pesticide safety, for example, to the public, you know, I'll talk about things like LD50s, you know, lethal mm -hmm. dose 50, right, which is, uh, you know, what dosage of a particular chemical uh, would cause, you know, mortality in 50% of a population of, of rats, mice, or whatever it's tested on. And so, you know, we look at things like glyphosate, which is Roundup that has been in the news a lot, and something like table salt or caffeine is way more toxic. But you know, then we're looking at that's just acute toxicity. You know, that's right. like immediate. How about chronic? Well, shoot, it's really hard to study chronic toxicity because, you know, you would need a population of, you know, what, maybe 10,000 people in a very controlled setting. Uh, and you ask half of them if they could get exposed to glyphosate on a specific <laughs> rate, you know, and, and control for every other factor. You know, so many confounding you know, when we talk about confounding factors, like someone who's been spraying glyphosate, it's also likely, you know, spraying a lot of glyphosate, it's also very likely that they spend more time outside, exposed to the sun more. It's more likely they're exposed to, uh, I don't know, air pollution and gas fumes outside. You know, there's just all these other factors that can contribute to any type of health effect that make it very difficult to study chronic toxicity. So usually I'll, that's kind of what I'll do is I'll take this approach of, you know, here are some simple, easy things that we can study, but here's why we don't have the full answers for you know this and, and why it's so controversial. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'll respond to that in a second. He comes in, he's like, yeah, he can't even hear you, but he's like responding to your questions. Yeah. Buddy, I'm almost done. Can you give me like five minutes? Okay. Okay. I'll be right in there. Okay. Okay. Love you. Okay. <laughs> it was really funny. He just, yeah, okay. No, it's, I'm glad we've got just multiple tracks of this. Skills. Yeah, yeah. We've got multiple tracks of this. Uh, yeah. But no, I think that's, I think that's a really interesting approach and a really good approach to science communication because it seems like the conventional wisdom in some ways um, that we use in the field is make it simple, get it out and move on to the next thing. Right. It's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and which there's a place for that, I think, but I like your, sure. I, I like your thought and your, um, take on it that, you know, science isn't simple. And, yeah. and these systems that we're dealing with are not like single points in space. They're complicated and there's a lot mm -hmm. that goes into it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I really like that. And, um, you know, I'm sure you do some of both where you take it and you make very simple points, but then you also take these big issues and let them be big issues. And I, and I well, really absolutely. like that. Yeah. I mean, cause I mean, there are some things that, you know, are, a little bit simpler to answer that are simpler to study and under certain assumptions, we can make conclusions on them. But then there are other things that are still very controversial that I think making conclusions, for example, you know, as a scientist to say that we know glyphosate is uh, safe for sure, um, you know, in terms of chronic effects would 
I, I think we're doing the public a disservice because we don't actually know that answer. And by right. saying that, um, you know, I think that's where people's trust of science can be broken. I, I think that's one of the biggest problems when it comes to science, uh, you know, uh, education and science communication is not so much the, the science behind it or how we communicate it. It's sometimes just because people don't trust science anymore because sometimes people under the name of science have made claims that are either not true or we just didn't actually know the answer to it. Right. Yeah. We make, we make big sweeping claims maybe before we really, really should rather than we really yeah, have the, yeah. the data to support it. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, we're kind of, I mean, we've kind of used up most of our time, but um, I, I've just got one last question for you. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. W- one thing that I've been trying to do at the end of most of these episodes is almost a, I don't know, a thank you for sticking with us and listening to all the science talk is um, like a practical piece of advice, like from um, from the different people that I'm interviewing. So if you, and this is maybe not in what you do, maybe not an easy question to answer, but for the average, you know, human who has a backyard or, or whatever, uh, and is trying to control pests or trying to, um, actually, let me, I'm going to go a different way with this. I'm going to start this question over. Um, uh, sorry, you can't, you've used up all uh, too, of your do-overs too late. I can't, I can't <laughs> use them all again anymore. No. So, um, I guess the question I have is for, um, people wanting to get into entomology or into sciences. I've got uh, a lot of friends whose kids are like all about it, right? They love the mm-hmm. bees. They love pollinators and, and all of that. What would your piece of advice be for like a young human? wanting to go learn more about insects. Hmm. Let me think about that here for a moment. I say, I don't think about young humans all that often, although I have one now. <laughs> except for the one. Yeah, except for that one. In the context of advice related to entomology, you know, if they, if they want to learn about it, just give me a second here to no, that's fine. Get, some, get some thought into that. Well, I guess, uh, honestly, it doesn't have to be a young kid. I just mean, oh. um, say someone that's that's planning out what they want to study, planning out their their life and their career. You know, we've talked about how it kind of okay. twists and turns sometimes. Like, yeah. So maybe, maybe a high school student that's interested in entomology. Um, just, I mean, like what, do you just, yeah. would you just jump into it, go find some bugs to start hanging out with? I mean, for starters, I would say don't underestimate the opportunities in entomology. Because insects are incredibly important, whether it comes to vectoring viruses, uh, human viruses, you know, mosquitoes are the biggest human killer, animal human killer on the planet, you know, whether it be West Nile virus or malaria or, uh, you know, Zika, chikungunya, so on and so forth, Uh, or you're looking at uh, pests of agricultural commodities, uh, they cause easy you know, billions of dollars. I'm thinking of just one invasive insect pest, spotted wing drosophila, which is a fruit fly of soft, soft body fruit that yeah. in one year when it was introduced, it caused about half a billion dollars worth of, uh, you know, uh, yield losses. Wow. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, incredible oppor- opportunities uh, to, to do research or do work in entomology because they are, you know, insects, again, are incredibly important to our uh, livelihood as humans. And, you know, if you're wanting to learn, uh, learn a thing or two, I mean, 
gosh, uh, you know, I'd say there's an incredible amount of online resources now. I would say start by trying to learn how to identify different types, different groups of insects, maybe starting at the level of order. Uh, so that's kind of a higher, we call it taxonomic level, uh, uh-huh. is, is a way of grouping these different insects. And just start exploring. You know, you can start collecting uh, with a net or just, you know, with your gloves or hands and stick the bug in a freezer. And, uh, you know, there's videos online of how to pin them. So you can start creating a little collection. So you can start learning about the different types of insects in your area, uh, the types of things they do, and and just kind of learn from there. I think it's all about just kind of growing your passion in entomology, um, you know, over time. That's awesome. Yeah. Just, just go out and do it. Just get started. Yeah. It's like, you know what? It's really like catching Pokemon, but real life. You know, I I heard the guy who created Pokemon (laughs) was like, yeah, it's like he was, apparently he was actually inspired by insects because, you know, they metamorphose, you know, like they transform from one form to the next. Right. A lot of insects do that too, you know, and that's, it's basically that you're basically catching real Pokemon and you get to do the extra detective work of figuring out what that insect is, figuring out its stats, you know, its attack ability, its defensibility, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so, you know, just get on out there and, and learn. It's, you know, it's all in your your backyard. That's awesome. Yeah, that that very much appeals to like the video game and uh, nerd in me. So yeah. I, I like that a lot. <laughs> um, so, hey, uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, where can where can people find you? Do you want people to find you? Or are you trying to hide? What's your social uh, yeah, media? I am, I am currently in hiding, uh, okay. but I will be out of hiding in the next five minutes. Uh, my oh, social media is six-legged Aggie, you know, insects of six legs. Uh, so six-legged Aggie. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I have sixleggedaggie.com. Uh, and I just started a YouTube channel, but I have not oh, cool. yet, uh, published too much on there, but, uh, I, I plan on publishing some more content that's geared towards growers and the general public. So there'll be kind of different playlists depending on your interests. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing that. So am I, I hope it works out. I think it'd be great. <laughs> so, uh, no, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate yeah. you, uh, taking hey, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And uh, we'll maybe do this again sometime. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Okay, we're clear. You know, I've been saying since this started that not nearly enough of my guests make their own sound effects and busy tones and, and all of that. I don't think I've ever said that, but I'm going to start saying that. So if you're a future guest, feel free to make your own sound effects. It's great. It's wonderful. Do the thing. Thanks so much again for listening. I hope you really enjoyed that. I think it was a fun episode, and uh, I think I learned a lot from it. Again, just like from everyone else, I have learned a lot. Um, Hook up with us on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. There's a really great uh, Facebook group now called Plantropology's Cool Plant People. So if you're one of those cool plant people, which I know you are, join the Facebook group. There's lots of great conversation. You'll get to hear from some really cool other plant nerds like, like you and me. If you want to support the show on Patreon, hit up patreon.com slash planthropology. Um, Again, March is going to be awesome. There's lots of content coming at you. You'll get to hear from me maybe more than you want to. So stick around, follow, subscribe, rate, review, do the thing. I love reading them and it really helps us out. Uh, But I'll see you next week. Actually, one week from today with a recording of Planthropology Live from Lubbock Con where I talk about super nerdy stuff like sci-fi and fantasy and plants and world building and everything in between. You've been great. See you next time.
Okay, we're clear. <laughs>